Hello and welcome to Signals from the Hill. My name's Stephen Walsh. In this episode, we're going to be wrapping up our coverage of the arrival of Alone in Space, a new collection of Tilly Walden's early work, by talking to Warren Bernard about A City Inside, Tilly's third book from Avery Hill Publishing, and one that was released in the wake of her tremendous success at the Ignatz Awards in 2016. Warren heads up the Small Press Expo, a massive comic show that takes place most years in Bethesda in Maryland in the States and obviously hasn't happened of late due to the coronavirus pandemic. But I know SPX was a big show for Ricky to attend even before we had success at the Ignatz Awards with Tilly and it was a huge deal for the company for Tilly to be recognised in such a significant way at those awards. So I talked to Warren about the process of him getting involved with SPX, his running at SPX and the Ignatz Awards as well as their other related activities. But also I thought Warren was a really good person to talk to about Tilly in terms of wrapping up our our coverage in the sense of the Ignatz Awards casting quite a large shadow over over the early part of, of Tilly's career and Warren bearing witness to all of that. Something that has been recognised in Alone in Space with the fact that it's Warren who's written uh, the introduction for the book and uh, does a a wonderful job of singing the praises of Tilly's work there and in this chat as well. But first up, let's listen to some adverts for some other comics podcasts you might enjoy. Oh, we've had an email asking if we wanted to do an advert for the Avery Hill podcast. Oh, that's nice of them. Does that mean we can't swear? Yeah, pretty much. So, no words like or and definitely no. I like Avery Hill comics. Yeah, they're nice. Uh, we're the Awesome Comics Pod. You can find us at awesomecomics.podbean.com or on iTunes. And as the Awesome Comics Podcast. And buy a copy of our Awesome Comic Anthology at www.awesomecomicpod.bigcartel.com. Oh, that was very professional, wasn't it? I knew that'd go all right. Oh, Jesus. In the monthly radio show on comics, Panel Borders, you can hear Alan Moore. Sometimes you see this gradual rehabilitation of Godzilla. Sandy Toxvig. There's something about the cartoon world that, honestly, in these grim times, is rather preferable to flesh and blood sometimes. Chris Riddell. I have a draw in my studio. Um, It's the naughty draw. And many more writers and artists talking about their craft. More info at www.panelborders.wordpress.com. Need a podcast all about comics topics, reviews, and just general chit-chat? Then join David Robertson, Fernando Pons, Mike Sadakat, Giuseppe Lambertino, and me, Tom Stewart, at That Comic Smell. You can find us on SoundCloud, YouTube, and iTunes, and on Twitter and Instagram at That Comic Smell. Pull up a chair and join us. And now, let's chat to Warren. Hello, Warren. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Steve. I, I, this is an honor for me to go ahead and be on this podcast. Uh, I, I guess to, to start, let's uh, talk in very general terms. What, you know, you have a, a, a role at SPX. What would, what would you describe that role as? Well, I'm, I'm the executive director and the chairman of the board. And ignoring the uh, ethical issues of holding both seats at once, <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, I'm the one who 
uh, and saying I'm in charge is kind of like not the right thing. I don't, I'm not that authoritarian, but I kind of keep the bus moving as the case may be to hold SPX year after year. And um, this is now my um, uh, 11th year, um, the 11th SPX I'll, I'll be in charge of. So I, I took over just before the 2011 show uh, in terms of, of uh, basically moving SPX forward uh, and um, been doing it ever since. And how did you get involved in that particular role in terms of, you know, leading the charge, as you say? Well, um, I, I was a volunteer uh, on, for SPX for a couple of years before that, actually um, it was about five or six years before that. Some people wanted a change in direction and to fix some, sir, some internal things that were going on. And so they came and got me. Uh, I, I, I actually came out of the corporate world, like for many, for many years, um, I really wasn't involved in the comics community except for going up to buy my comic books at the local comic book shop. And, um, but I came out of the corporate world. And so I had legal experience, marketing experience, th th things like that. And I need someone to come in and make some, uh, like I changed the uh, construction of the board of uh, directors. Um, I changed a bunch of things in terms of how the, how the nonprofit is structured and what they can do. So I was brought in for these more strategic things. And then I focused on expanding the, the image and footprint of, of the show itself. Well, I mean, that's worked a treat because it is, it's a show that has, you know, a global reputation now. I've, uh, I, you know, I live in the West of Ireland now and lived in London before that, and I've never been to SBX, but I was always very aware that it was going on, always very impressed by the lineup. And obviously, since I've got involved uh, with Avery Hill, uh, and, you know, Ricky is a huge fan of SBX and was constantly saying to me that I need to, get over to uh see the show for myself because it is you know a force of a force of nature it, it's um of all the indie comic show what what it is it's the biggest and it may not be the biggest in terms of the number of people coming through the door but it is the biggest in terms of the number of exhibitors we have on our exhibitor floor and uh, also the number of panels that we have and workshops that we have over the two-day show um, is big or better that's strictly up to debate but they're, they're one of the other things that we have is is that everything is in one very large ballroom and so when you walk in there it's it's a, it's um, better than a it's like 26 or 27,000 square feet inside this one big room that we take up every square inch of it with exhibitor tables and uh, we also have uh, two, um, uh, two programming rooms. And then we also have another room where we do workshops. So it's, it's a very immersive experience. And the other thing that makes it sort of unique is the fact that the facility where we have all these rooms and the hotel are the same complex. So you don't have, um, that's one of our strategic advantages. What, what you don't have is, is at the end of the day, people don't have to go back to their hotels. Their hotels are right, their hotel rooms are right there. And that creates an energy that, that um, other shows don't have because they have to have this, understandably, this bifurcation in between where you stay and where you exhibit. 
It does look like, as I say, looking from a distance, it looks like there's certain innovations and elements to the show that do make it incredibly sort of uh, vibrant and, and distinct from, from other shows. Uh, as you say, the sort of scale of the, the creators that you you post there, which I think is is sort of partially helped by the fact, I don't know if this is still the policy, but you, you don't have retailers tabling at the show, essentially. No, we do not. Yeah. And and people must be selling comics and we do our best with the with the lottery we actually go through a process with the lottery that the people who submit um well i'm sorry the people we choose off the lottery they have to be vetted so we go out to their websites and say are these people doing comics either single panel cartoons or sequential cartoons they can't just come and be someone selling prints or someone just selling merchandise they have to actually sell comics and do comics to one extent or another so we don't have we 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 take all of those other people that you might see at some other shows. Although the indie comic shows, if you go to TCAF and you go to Mocha, and you know if you go and I've been to LCAF, Sam Arthur had me out there uh, two years ago. Uh, they, they, they do the same thing that that you don't see um, retailers or merchandisers per se coming into the shows, and that's I think one of the big differences between an indie comic show and a superhero comic show. Yeah, there's a big sort of, I'm sure it's a similar debate in North America as well, but there's a big sort of debate in the UK comic scene about, you know, the recent phenomenon of, you know, quote unquote, Comic-Cons presenting themselves as places to visit. And then you look at the guest list and it's actors from Doctor Who. Uh, yes. And then you get to the show and it's, uh, you know, stalls full of T-shirts and Funko Pops and, you know, things that people definitely enjoy and there's absolutely a place for people to enjoy and uh you know purchase but a comic-con without comics essentially and it's a sort of uh, worrying uh, trend this sort of brand has become synonymous with you know we sell pop culture merchandise rather than worrying about the the form itself so it's nice to know that you know shows like spx are particularly looking to focus in on creators doing comics work and letting them get the, the spotlight and the sales well yes and and like i said all the indie comic shows that i'm aware of here in the united states and you know there, there's my so Toptic, um uh like i said mocha tcaf here in basically north america uh all of them are that way in in the sense that they focus on the comics and on the creators so that they're, they're well, we're all welcome islands in this sea of pop culture. And you actually hit the nail on the head that these comic cons, and we have them here, uh, Baltimore Comic Con, although somewhat less so, they, they have a pretty good focus on comics. But what has happened is if they've taken a page and not unrightfully so, because commercially it's, it's you know, uh, profitable to say the least, to make it not so much a comics convention as is a pop culture convention. And so that kind of moves the line over. And so comics are only one piece of pop culture. And, um, and you can get into TV and movies and all, those other, all of those other kinds of things, Pokemon cards and, and that. So uh, uh, our, you know, we're, we're kind of a bulwark against the, um, the seawalls coming in from pop culture into these islands to the indie comics. I'm sure you're making sort of tweaks to the show every year to try and improve the experience of the visitors and the, the creators that are selling there. But I, I watched one video on YouTube 
where it was basically a sort of debrief on the Sunday. And this was from quite a while ago, it was like 2011, 2012. And uh, the people that were interviewing you were saying how you'd basically arrange for an ATM to be in yes. the place. <laughs> uh, and how you were frustrated because the ATM had run out of money and they weren't able to restock it. But as the people pointed out, that ATM meant there was an extra $10,000 to be spent in the show. And if that got emptied out, then suddenly, you know, the $10,000 got onto the floor and into the pockets of, of creators. So, you know, definitely a worthwhile exercise. Yes, well, that, that all came about uh, somewhat by accident. A, a good friend of mine, who's actually the, the lawyer that helped me redo the Arcos Incorporation, all the legal stuff for SPX when I took over, he came to SPX and he said, you know, Warren, you can rent ATMs. And I had no idea you could do anything like that. So this is like 2011, I think he came. And I did some research the next year, I you know, got some ATMs and, you know, they, they ran out, but that meant there was more money on the floor. And so every year since then, we, we, we put two ATMs in because the room is so big, we put one on either end of the floor. And um, uh, that, that has proved that other shows started to do that um, because um, a lot of people at that time weren't taking um, uh, digital payments. Now it's a little different. The amount of cash that, um, it, it, like for instance, for us, taking ticket money, we now take in very little cash and most of it's done electronically one way or the other. Um, and so that, that, that whole thing about cash is now moving as the society moves away from cash. So the last full show we did in 2019, don't get me wrong, a lot of cash came out of the ATMs, but it wasn't what it was in 2018 or 2017. So we, we were starting to see a decrease in that because people had their own payment, payment methods you know, people using Square or what have you. I was going to say, in, in that same uh, debrief, they mentioned the idea of uh, having essentially helium balloons attached to the tables of creators who were Ignatz nominated yes. uh, that year. So <laughs> really smart sort of visual idea, really sort of fun thing to do, but also a useful guide to people who are visiting who, you know, subconsciously it could become a thing where they're like, well, if I buy every sort of Ignatz book and then they're sort of doing a little treasure hunt around the floor. So it's a, another fun feature. Yeah, that, that was one of those ones. And, and I'll admit that was, a, that was a total accident. There were a couple of us on a phone call and we were trying to figure out, you know, how do we get people over to the Ignatz nominees so that they can go ahead and get the books and then they would be able to vote or, or at least be able to get the books if not voting. And, you know, a bunch of ideas being thrown around. And I don't know what came over me. I, just on a lark, I said, what about balloons? And I, I, I'll be honest with you. I sent that, I said that like, like half jokingly. And all of a sudden, other people on the other, uh, on the other end of the, the call were like, well, that's not a bad idea. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I was like, whoa. And, and then the more we thought about it, um, the more it was like, oh, gee. And, and then we decided to put the Ignatz logo on the balloon. Uh, all right. And that first year we did it, one, when, when you walked in, it was a much more festive atmosphere. All right. But then the other thing is, is you could walk in and you could look up and you, could, you didn't need to go through our rather massive floor plan you know, 200, 270 tables, 600 creators. You didn't have to go through that to figure out where the Ignatz nominees were. 
The other thing that we did was, is we found out because the floor had gotten so big. So there are what? There were 14 rectangles of tables. And that first year, people were having, first two years, people were having trouble equating the floor to the map. And we decided, okay, let's go ahead and just put, we got these big balloons. And I think they were like two foot high of all of the different letters, A through H or whatever it may be. And we floated them up in the center of each one of the rectangles. And all of a sudden, people's ability to navigate got a lot better. Very, and notice these are very old fashioned analog solutions. <laughs> so we didn't go to any fan, you know, we didn't have people you know, building fancy maps on web phones and stuff like that. You just kind of, <laughs> you, you break out your, your thing and you, you, you look down at our map and you look up and you go, oh, there's A, there's B, there's J. And then, then you can figure out where you're going. So it, it, was, it was low tech, but it definitely adds to the festivities, to the festive atmosphere. And yeah, exactly. It's, it's a decorative element for the room as well as everything else, isn't it? Right, exactly. So it's it it turn it it serves these two really interesting purposes that are uh, very 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 closely entwined. So we've sort of uh, talked about the Ignatz Awards there without really uh, highlighting what they are, and and again, uh, you know, hugely prestigious awards that are recognised internationally. You know, uh, while I was working at Gosh and I've stayed in the habit now of each year, you know, tracking the shortlists and following the, the winners to see who's been uh, successful. And, and I, I don't know, obviously it wasn't the case last year, but traditionally it's always been a thing where it's a festival award. So yes. the votes are cast by people who are at the show. Yes, that that, that is true. And um uh, yeah, so, so people can get a ballot. There are a whole bunch of different ways to get ballots on the floor when you check in or, uh, and get your badge and stuff like that. And um, yeah, then, and, and everybody votes on Saturday and Saturday um, they, we count the votes up before the Ignatz Awards and figure out, I mean, there's this like three hour time frame between the time the show ends and the time that we put on the Ignatz Awards that there are a bunch of people who I bow down to every SPX that pull together the votes, they get the presentations together, they, you know, so all of those, you know, the, the, um, uh, the nominee cards are put in the envelopes, you know, all, rather the winner cards are put in the envelopes, all of those dynamics happen within a very, very short period of time. It's, it's actually, um, like I said, I, I bow down to the people who do all that work. And the awards themselves, uh, as a tribute to Ignatz the mouse and uh, the from uh, right from Terriman. George Harriman's Crazy Cat. Yes, the awards themselves are bricks. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. They're, they're <laughs> on a wooden stand. They're bricks. Uh, and for those people that don't know, George Harriman is um, uh, one of the most famous uh, American cartoonists. His his works are both some of the most visually interesting works you will see, and some of the most interesting in terms of language that you will read in any comics. What he did with language was actually very, very interesting. And some people get it and some people don't, but it's, he's acknowledged over here as one of the greats. And oh, by the way, even though he hid this, um, he, he was um, uh, part Creole and uh, had uh, black ancestors. 
uh, and because of the racism of the time, he hid his, he hid that background to the point where almost every photo you see of him, he's wearing a hat to hide his to hide his hair. Yeah, so uh, uh, so the Ignatz Awards, uh, we're so happy we were able to get it. We had to get special dispensation from King Features back in the 90s to allow us to use the word. Um, uh, you were raising the point earlier about how it's become um, uh, international in its scope. And uh, that, that is one of those things that it's not, a, you know, we didn't go out and try to advertise it as this thing. It was this organic growth that all of a sudden when people, when you read their CVs on the back cover of whatever graphic novel they're at, they always promote that they won Eisner Awards and Ignatz Awards. And those, those are the two really big ones. And the, the level of prestige that has been, uh, shall we say, granted to it by the comics community around the world has been nothing short of amazing to us. Well, I think that level of prestige interesting because for, for me looking at it from the outside that seems very organic where you you know first of all as I think a festival award there's something interesting there in terms of the very particular nature of how things are being voted but it, I think it just became a thing where as, as, as you look at the Ignatz award winners over the years it becomes this thing of like, oh yeah, these are all good. <laughs> yes. So yeah. when the next one's announced, you're like, oh, I better check these out because there's a good chance they're going to be good. So then suddenly, as you say, people are using it as a marketing thing for their books and it grows into this thing where it's a sort of virtuous circle almost, isn't it? Where the, the more good people who win, the more people want to talk about it. And the more people want to talk about it, the more people want to win. So yeah, it's, um, it's a tremendous uh little uh, feature and uh, part of the show. Yeah, or organic is, is the right word. It's it just something that has accumulated. I think the first ones were in 1994. Um, and it's just accumulated this, this, as you say, this level of prestige that um, we're all very aware of and very grateful for. It's not anything that, like I said, we didn't go out and try to promote this thing. It just happened, which is one of the great one of the great stories in the comics world about how how this particular award has has gotten to that level. And looking at other sort of affiliated activities to SPX, one of the things that again I've never sort of uh, you know seen it in action or, or been part of it, but the the graphic novel gift program uh, sounds like a wonderful idea. Yes, uh, the graphic novel gift program, we started that, I think I started that like 11 years ago. Um, it, we, it came out of the Great Recession of 2008 to 2010. And what had happened was, was that libraries had gotten their budgets cut to like nothing in terms of acquisitions. So um, I talked to uh, some of the, uh, the larger book publishers and I said, hey, look, you know, if we were to go out and do this, would you sell us your books at 50% off and be part of this program? And they said, oh, yeah, sure. And um, make a long story short, we, we started out with Montgomery County here because it was easy and I knew some people within the system. Um, we gave to, uh, we, we changed the focus so that the library systems that we help um, would be in uh, areas that either have um, a very diverse population of people, 
they are economically, the library system and its patrons are economically disadvantaged. So we, we've, for the last like seven or eight years, we've turned the focus to go ahead and help library systems most in need. And what we do that's kind of different is, is we don't give them, you know, 250 books. We say, look, here is uh, the list of books from these SPX uh, publishers, uh, drawn and quartered, drawn and quarterly, Fanographics, uh, Top Shelf. It used to be Koyama Press, but but she left. Uh, she she has retired from from publishing. Um, Ad House Books, and I know I'm forgetting one or two others in there. Oh. Um, Jeff Smith, uh, his bone books are part of the program. Uh, uh, and um, anyway, so we go ahead and we say, look, choose from these lists and they choose the books. And what, one of the things we found is, is that every single library system has said, we had no idea books like this were available, everyone. And uh, it allowed them to get books that more, that better match the diverse patron population that, that they serve. So uh, uh, it's, it's been really uh, uh, an amazingly effective uh, and a really, really nice thing to do when you go to the libraries and you, you turn the books over and you talk to the people there. It's, it's, you know, the enthusiasm is just great. Now, unfortunately, due to the pandemic, we've had to um, put that on hiatus. So uh, because we don't have any income coming in and we're not going to know uh, what our income is going to be for most probably a year or two, you know, the first two SPXs after we start, we have no idea who's going to show up, how successful they're going to be, um, how, how inflation is going to hit us. So um, unfortunately, we've had to put that and uh, the other uh, outreach things that we've done uh, on, on hiatus up until we get a better feel for what our finances are going to be after the 2023 show. It's if there's any sort of... If there's any sort of comfort there, that it does feel like since you started that program, particularly in the States, there's been a sort of transformative attitude to comics in terms of, of libraries. You know, the, the, the rise of, you know, yes. Ray, uh, you know, Raina Telgemeier and Dave Pilkey, you know, those books have become mainstays of uh, libraries now. And it's been, as I say, a, a massive boost I think for the comics industry as a whole and the medium in terms of children getting access and availability and also just the sort of you know I was I was chatting to someone on an, another podcast a little while ago and saying like when I was a kid I'd go to the library and I'd read everything and anything but there was very much an attitude of if you were going to read a comic you had to read a proper book as well it was a sort of thing of like oh. you have to balance <laughs> it out with you know actual prose otherwise you're not really reading whereas I think now you know, uh, you mentioned in that that sort of uh, list of contributors, like if every library that you've worked with has a complete set of Bone by Jeff Smith, that is a com an absolute boon for those children. Isn't it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And um, uh, and the other thing is, is we we also hope that and, and I'll be honest with you, we're, you know, um, to a degree, we're capitalists. Um, and we also hope that in future years, the buyers for the library systems would go back to those publishers again and keep adding those kinds of graphic novels as they continue to come out. Yeah, I think so it is just building that momentum, isn't it? You sort of create yes. this thing of, of, and like, you know, if those books get into the libraries and they are regularly loaned 
by children, then they kind of have to uh, follow up and, you know, get the rest of the series or replace the books as they fall apart yes. from being constantly reread. So there's definitely, a, I think, a, a power to that idea of, of sort of working with libraries to uh, sort of cre create a shift in the, the cultural appreciation. Of, of well, and, and also it's a great way to get exposure to SPX creators to a wide population that would most probably that may not and most probably would not either know about or step into SPX. So, um, you know, uh, I don't know how many people in the Western Panhandle of Maryland are going to be coming to SPX, but at least they could they could know the um the creators that that attend the show one of the things we do for each book we have for for every year we've done it we had a different spx creator um draw us a really nice book plate and so every book that we give has an spx book plate in it done by an spx creator so that everyone can see you know if they open it up there's this book plate that says we gave it then, then if they have the curiosity, they can find out who we are. And similarly, your work in sort of concert with the Library of Congress to, you know, in, establish a collection there and and sort of create a relationship between that institution and SPX is a massive sort of act of, of outreach, isn't it? Yeah, it was um, <laughs> that... There were there were two different things that that happened. The, the, the first one was was that I uh, I've been a volunteer down at the Library of Congress for many years now. The person I work with, Sarah Duke, one of the uh, uh, curators down there in the Prints and Photographs Division, would come to me and say, "Hey Warren, we're going to do the National Book Festival, the single largest book festival in the United States." And you know, Warren, who do you think we should get for the for graphic novels? <laughs> and so I did that for like two years and then I got um, uh, introduced to the person who was in charge of the National Book Festival. And um, I, I said, hey, look, you know, there's maybe there's something we can work out here. And what we had before the pandemic changed everything, what we had was, was that um, we would help them get creators for the graphic novel um, pavilion and for, you know, graphic novelists in general. And uh, we would we would help fund up to three people from the small publishers come into the National Book Festival. Now, one of the requirements of the National Book Festival is, is that the publishers have to fund the transportation in the hotel for their given participant, for the author that, that they are sponsoring to come to National Book Festival. The Library of Congress does not pay for that part. So, and you know, a lot of the smaller publishers that we work with, um, you know, they, they're, they're watching every penny. So uh, in exchange for doing this, they gave us a sponsorship. So when you look at the sponsorship thing, um, you, can, you can see that SPX is one of the sponsors. And then before one or two or three, depending on how many of the graphic novel people speak, um, we, we're allowed to, you know, put our logos up and promote ourselves in front of the National Book Festival, which as I alluded to is the largest book festival in the United States. Uh, the last one they had in person had over 200,000 people come to it. 
And uh, it's, uh, it, it is the big stage here in the United States in terms of an author. So uh, it, it's, it's been an honor to see SPX creators up on the same stage, in quotes, uh, as some of the most famous Pulitzer Prize winning authors in the United States of America. And um, the, the goal of this is, of course, to get people to know, understand, and like indie comics. And so this has been a very big and very successful program that we've had with the Library of Congress on the National Book Festival. The uh, other one we've got is, is that um, I'm a collector. I, I think you, you may have seen one or two of my videos. And um, what happened was, is there were some mini comics that I, were, that I was looking for that when I contacted the creators, even the creators didn't have them. And it occurred to me that all this stuff is very ephemeral. And uh, what I did was, is I approached the Library of Congress about establishing a collection which in structure is unlike any other collection they have there. Normally, when you have an institution, whether it's Library of Congress or university or a museum, what normally happens is, is that a collector will come along and say, oh, I've got this collection. Would you want this collection? They work something out and that collection gets deposited. The difference with this is, is that we actually collect as SPXs are held. So we have a team of curators. We have, a, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say curators, a team of Library of Congress staff that comes into SPX and they go around the room asking for donations to the SPX collection at the Library of Congress. Now, Library of Congress already gets a lot of things under copyright, so we don't focus on that in our collection, the SPX collection. Many comics normally aren't copyrighted, and actually there are some, some books that are put out on Kickstarter and some other places that may not be submitted for copyright, for whatever the reason may be. So our focus is to, is to gather up all of that uncopyrighted material and place it in, in the Library of Congress for future generations. Because all of this stuff is ephemeral, it will wash away. There are many comics that I know that we've got in the Library of Congress collection that if you went out today, you would run across copies of action number one for sale before you would find that mini comic. That's how <laughs> rare some of these things yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's not an exaggeration, okay? No. Um, rarity and value do not correlate in any way, shape or form and mini comics is one way. The other, the other way that we get contributions to the SPX collection of the Library of Congress is when you submit um, for, uh, to be considered for the Ignatz nominations, we take one copy because you submit six copies, five of the copies go out to the, um, the various judges, then that sixth copy that you, that you have gets donated to the Library of Congress. So, and between those that I got them to come in, we are now, uh, for the last couple of years, we've been, I've had someone come in specifically look for prints and um, uh, posters and things like that. Now there is over uh, 10,000 items in the SPF collection at the Library of Congress. That's amazing. Um, and, you know, it's, it's preserving the culture of indie comics through SPX for future generations. And it also ensures that some of that these very ephemeral works don't disappear. Yeah, I can't think of a safer place 
for ephemeral work than the Library of Congress. <laughs> I, I would, as, as I go around the room, if there's somebody I, I don't know before, I, I've never met before, um, I'll say to them, says, look, you know, we'd love to get a copy of this. And oh, by the way, our intention is, is to preserve this until the sun goes supernova. <laughs> that's the thing isn't it like a, a lot of indie comic shows sort of uh you know trading copies is a very sort of common thing for creators yes. to do uh, so yes. i'd imagine saying to someone would you like your book to be placed into a particular you know sphere of preservation and you know allowing it to be accessible to the public but at the same time protected and preserved bite your hand off wouldn't they yeah it, it's Every I can't think I can't think of anybody that I've approached that has said no. We don't we don't want to do that. <laughs> um, and uh, the and and so if you think about this, this is a really unique collaboration between a comics festival and and a collecting institution. It kind of shows that that you have to kind of think outside the box to do this level of preservation because, as I said, this is preserving as you go along. So every year SPX comes, we go in there, we get a bunch of stuff, we preserve it. We don't have to wait for a collector. If indeed there are collectors out there that are collecting to the extent that an institution would want all of this stuff. So they, and actually the Library of Congress to their credit, and I give them tons of credit for this, they've had to, they have poured resources into that preservation. When we first started collecting this stuff, the mini comics didn't fit into any of their acid-free folders. They were too small and too odd shaped. And they went out and got a new set of folders just to handle the mini comics. They've deacidified some of the newsprint stuff that we've done. They've had to set aside um, people's time to catalog all of this stuff. They've, they've dedicated, um, valuable preservation space in the Library of Congress to contain everything. So if people complain about their tax dollars not being used well, well, how about this? I'm gonna claim some of those tax dollars to help preserve the SPX collection. It's wonderful if you can get a, an institution of that sort of size and magnitude to embrace comics as a form. You know, what a wonderful you know, achievement that is. Well, one of the things while I was working there, I had noticed that their collections internally had stopped in the, in the mid to late 90s. They really didn't have anything. They really didn't have anything uh, uh, that said that really spoke to this indie comics world. So that was another reason for kind of bolting this on, because they immediately understood that if we that if we have this and continue to do it, they could build up this institutional collection, which, you know, would would be unrivaled and you know like i said now we've got ten thousand items in the collection and i can't think of another institution that's got that that much indie comics material talking of uh, impressive collections it's a good segue isn't it <laughs> <laughs> uh, i stumbled across a wonderful video online uh under the uh cartoonist kayfay banner uh, a tremendous youtube series hosted by ed pisker and jim rugg where you invited them to your house to look over your own, you know, not insignificant collection. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, as a matter of fact, that they did that the Monday after SPX 2019, they came to my house. So, I, you know, I had just got finished doing five days of pure, intense, adrenaline burning, 
you know, SPX stuff. And then they came to my house, I think it was around 10 or 10.30 the Monday afterwards, and we, we started filming. Uh, so yeah, it was a real honor to have, to have them come. Um, as you can tell, my, my collection is not one-sided in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> so I, I have everything in there. I've got Chris Ware, I've got Yo Swarta, I've got uh, Lily Correa, and I've got Her Block, and I've got George Harriman, and I've got Windsor McKay, and I've got Rare World War One and World, World War II material and political cartoons. And so it's, um, uh, it's, it's not what people think of when they think of a comics collection. It's actually very, I have, I have actually very few outright comic books. And it, actually at the end of that, um, well, that tour, Ed asks me where my long boxes were. <laughs> and I said, thankfully I don't collect that stuff anymore or else I wouldn't be, you know, I'd need a house twice the size I've got now. I did think it was remarkable to have that two and a half hour long, a two and a half hour long tour where you're opening drawers and folders and storage boxes and archival boxes and showing them just treasure after treasure after treasure. And then at the end, Ed Fisk is like, uh, you're the comics. And you're like, you've seen loads. There's plenty of stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, well, but, but also um, uh, one of the things is, is I don't view, some people put things into boxes and you've got comic books and that's one box, superhero comic books. Then you've got indie comics, that's another box. You've got political cartoons, it's another box. And I don't think there should be boxes. I think it's all the same thing. Um, um, uh, most probably one of the few people that think that way, but I don't see, to me, there's no difference between the latest political cartoons from the nib and um, you know me going through Fantastic Four forty eight through fifty, the coming of Galactus and the Silver Surfer. <laughs> so I don't, I don't, I don't discern any differences there. Whether it's you know Tilly Walden to me is in the same genre of comics as the great political cartoonist Herblock. I, I, so I, I don't view them any differently, and that, that's reflected in my collection. Well, you've mentioned Tilly there, and obviously. Uh, the sort of the prime reason we're here uh, today is to talk about Tilly and her work. I, I wonder when you first became aware of, of Tilly's work. Do you remember? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, you know, um, there's one video out there that I think touches on this. So um, I was invited to be a um, special guest at LICAF back in, I think it was 2016. And um, I was talking with uh, uh, Julie Tate, um, Julie and Carol run that fabulous show, uh, Lakes International Comic Arts Festival, beautiful place, absolutely well run, loved it, loved the whole experience. And I said, sure, you know, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. And they says, well, would you do some interviews for us? I was like, sure. So they chose for me two of the most incongruous people to interview. And Tilly was one of them. And the other was Gilbert Shelton, the old <laughs> underground cartoonist. Yeah. So I, I had to really flip myself between the two interviews. So yeah, a bit of a not too long. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was <laughs> very different. <laughs> so um, I was up at TCAF and um, I searched for the Avery Hill table and uh, Ricky and Dave were there and I met them. And the first time I went, um, Tilly was not at the table. And the second time I came around to the table, 
she was there and I looked down, she had her two books in, in, in front of her. And um, the, the one book, I looked down in the cover of the end of summer. Okay, and I looked down at the cover and I go, oh, that's the great room of the library, the, the, the great hall of the Library of Congress. And she goes, how did you know that? <laughs> and then she looks at me and she goes, oh, you're the guy with the collection. And I went, how did you know that? <laughs> and we, we and, and so that's how we were introduced to one another. And um, I am still, I am the only person to have made the connection between the cover of the end of summer and the visit that she made to the Library of Congress with her, I think it was her junior high school or high school band that came into DC. Um, That's amazing. Yes, uh, I, 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 I have partially photographic memory, so I'm really <laughs> good with stuff like that. Uh, uh, and then we worked together on our presentation uh, an interview for LICAF. And then when we did the presentation at LICAF, and we, we did this all remotely, and um, you know, it focused on, on her influences, Miyazaki, uh, Windsor McKay. And a really, really interesting thing happened that, that both of us were just floored. So we, we did our thing, and afterwards, a couple people came down and they said, it was the best presentation they had seen at LICAF. And a woman who introduced herself as a psychologist complimented us on the way we were, the, the way I kind of probed into Tilly and the way Tilly was responding in terms of getting out exactly how she um, made her creations and the influences that she had. And we were, the both of us were just stunned. Okay, we, we did not expect that in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> so um, uh, I, I then invited her to SPX, and she came to my house, and um, we've, we've become good friends, and it's very incongruous. You, you can't see it because I'm on a podcast, but you know, we're, we're easily two generations apart in age. And so it's, it's neither of us can explain it, but to say that, that we really understand and know one another is an understatement. It's, um, uh, it's, it's mind boggling to me. And but it is that thing of, of like that connection through creativity, isn't it? You can appreciate Tilly as a creator. Tilly loves to create. So there is an absolute bond there, isn't there, of a kind? Yeah, and, and, and that's part of it. But, th but there are other things that we've talked as we've talked to one another in terms of non-comics things that we really connect on also. So uh, it's, it's, it's multifaceted in terms of, of how the, the lines of communication that we hold with one another. Um, it is uh, something that anyone looking at the two of us would be like, how the hell did you two get this way? <laughs> <laughs> so um, <clears throat> for which I, I, I am honored to say, to say the least. So, uh, uh, you know, she's uh, very special in a whole bunch of different ways. Her, her talent is unbelievable. So, so yes, I, I uh, uh, and, and by the way, then out of nowhere, last October, 
I got an email from Tilly saying, um, hey, Warren, um, before you do this, I just want to let you know that, you know, I'll send you some art or something like that if you do this. But Ricky, who apparently knows, who knows you, she didn't know that myself and Ricky knew one another, <laughs> um, asked if I would, I of all people would write the introduction to this, to Alone in Space, which just came out. And of course, my immediate reaction, I sent a note off to Ricky, Ricky, you know, in this day of Iranian and, you know, North Korean and Russian trolls, I got to be sure. <laughs> and, and do you really want to do this? Because, you know, um, I don't want to damage anybody's street cred. <laughs> by writing this. So um, last, uh, last fall, they, last October, they approached me and um, I'd never done anything like this before. And I wrote up what, what you now see. And, and that was just an on beyond thrill for me to do something like that. And so that, that kind of shows the, the connection between myself and Tilly because Tilly was like, oh yes. And you know, that, that was just amazing to me. Well, this sort of the recent series of podcasts we've done has have been sort of looking back at Tilly's early work, you know, particularly with the idea of them being collected together now in, in alone in space and sort of, you know, recognizing her progression as a creator and looking at the, the sort of the landmarks um, uh, along the way. And, and obviously, you know, it's impossible to ignore the 2016 Ignatz Awards in that where yes. Tilly wins two bricks, you know. Yes. <laughs> a remarkable uh, achievement. And, and again, you know, as a tribute to the Ignatz Awards, uh, I, I was working at Gosh at the time, but not for Avery Hill. But it was certainly something that resonated through the larger comics world. The fact that Tilly had, you know, uh, received this this recognition from the the Ignatz Awards, and obviously now, uh, you know, working with Avery Hill, you know, it's it's impossible to ignore the the relevance of that in terms of the, the scale of recognition and and you know the the value in in marketing to that you know to talk about it in that very sort of uh crass clumsy way but you know also that recognition of the craft that that comes with an, an ignatz award and and by the way she won those i think she was 21 or 22 right. when she won those yeah which, which is you know just unbelievable <laughs> yeah it, it was um it was so great seeing her get those awards and uh of course you know i i I'm biased. I'll admit it. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I, and I love her work uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, so yeah, the, this alone in space, it was great seeing. I had not read the uh, earlier stuff, uh, the stuff from CCS and the little mini comic stuff that, that, that she did. So it was very interesting seeing that work. I'd never seen that work before. Yeah. It's a wonderful edition isn't it, where you've got obviously the early published works, but these things that were, as you say, unpublished or would have had, you know, uh, very sort of short publication life in a magazine that wasn't necessarily distributed all too widely. And, you know, even now with sort of web comics, if you do web comics for a certain online outlet and they go out of business and the server goes down, you know, there's nothing, you know, truly eternal, is there? That's the, the thing. But a, a book like this does give those those pieces a bit more uh life and you know what a treat to get them all in one package 
Well, now it's interesting you mentioned the, the web comics thing because I just want to retreat back to Library of Congress thing for just for a second. I did leave out one thing. We also preserve comics websites. Ah. And um, one of the things the Library of Congress does do is that once the nominees come out for best web comic, the Library of Congress will go contact the people and actually suck up the entire website to preserve it on the Library of Congress servers. Fantastic, fantastic. And we had, we had an incident, just, just to speak to exactly what you're saying. Yeah. This yeah. is about five or six years ago now, I think. Uh, James Kachalka, one of the Top Shelf's um, creators, great, you know, a great humorous, very funny um, uh, cartoonist. The server that his daily um, diary comics was on was about to be decommissioned. And he sent me a note, hey, Warren, you know, you know, this is about to be basically destroyed forever. Is there anything that you can do? Uh, now, he didn't know about all the stuff with Library of Congress, and I got a hold of the people at the Library of Congress, and we were able to go ahead and preserve all of James Kacholka's diary comics. Brilliant. So, so that work is being done. I forgot to say this. So we do do the stuff in the third dimension, but then we <laughs> also have a, a digital aspect to the collection. And, you know, we, we also went and got Kate Beaton's uh, website oh, fantastic. And, 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 that, and that's been sucked up so um, no we're we're very aware of the ephemeral nature in particular the digital world yeah I think there was an initial thing of like you know people mistaking something digital as being eternal and it can't be burnt or you know but it can still be destroyed it still, it still can be lost so yeah absolutely any work that can be done to preserve Comics in every form is is vital. So that's uh, great to hear. So so yeah, it was it was uh, like I said, it was a thorough honor um, doing uh, the introduction to Alone in Space. Um, I like I said, I reread pretty much the entire thing, and uh, just great work. Uh, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Yeah, I wanted to talk uh, particularly about. Uh, a city inside, which is obviously released in the wake of the the Ignat's triumph. So suddenly there's a bit more, not necessarily expectation, but Tilly's a bit of a, a different proposition as a creator uh, at this point. But it's another uh, wonderful piece, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. And, and it shows, and this is one of the interesting things about Tilly, it shows her capabilities as a, as a storyteller. And um, also the degree to which she goes ahead and she can go ahead and put all of these emotions into her stories. And there are emotions that she puts herself in the position of someone who is older um, uh, in, this, in this particular case. Yeah. The, uh, all right. And, and, and that's a really unusual thing for people to do period so uh, i it's it's a it's a wonderful story about relationships and loss and things like that um, um but it it shows a a a really deft grasp of loss of relationships of love uh, and things like that that 
um, is to me is a very rare thing in in the graphic novel field. And just in terms of of Tilly, in terms of her sort of development as a creator, there's another sort of you know fresh storytelling aspect here where you know she, just things like she uses a framing sequence almost because like she's like oh I haven't done this yet let's try that let's see if this you know uh, has any particular effect and visually as well you know it's not so much experimental but just a different uh, take you know, obviously with uh, the end of summer and I love this part there's a sort of wash effect whereas this is her first sort of long piece where she's really using hatching to get uh, that sort of effect of solidity to it but um, well you know, the, the, it remarkably uh, well Yes, well, uh, well, there's not only that, but but if you notice on a city inside, she almost purposely for every frame changed where you were looking at that frame from. So, that, but as you say it, I'm sort of visualizing it, and yeah, that is okay. Oh. So, so, so every single panel, she is shifting where you're seeing everything from, and and every panel was different. That wasn't necessarily the case with um, the end of summer. You know, you can you can see uh, not so much repetition, but that she would use the same thing and maybe change a couple of the elements within the panel. Use the same backgrounds, use this, and then change. A yeah, it's more natural transition, isn't it? It's more sort yes. of straightforward. And whereas with this, it's more. It sort was. Of, it's cinematic. Yeah, and also okay. you know the the sort of poetic nature of the the story and the sort of dreamlike element to it that really helps that sort of shifting uh visual aspect doesn't it yes absolutely and and as you know she's a she's a big fan of Winsor McKay and Miyazaki um yeah, yeah. and uh you know th those two all you have to do is take one of them if not both of them and <laughs> you get this the the whole dreamlike sequence stuff but um uh she she also watches a lot of film and as I say in, in my introduction, you know, she has a very cinematic eye. And when you look at uh, a city inside in particular, you, you know, just take a look and see where each one of those panels, where she's placed the camera, so to speak. Yeah. And, and changes everything each and every time. It's almost, um, it, it's almost film noir-ish. It's almost German expressionist. It's, there's a whole bunch of, elements now you know i i truly doubt that she went out and watched you know um uh, fritz lang's uh stuff in weimar germany and um <laughs> robert sadamak's stuff in terms of film noir but that's the impression that i get because of my background uh in in looking at film that that that's one of the things that really struck me besides the story of a city inside well it's this wonderful sort of contrast as well as you say the visually that that sort of feel of german expressionism but narratively you know a, a very strong feeling of magical realism isn't there there's this sort of you know as i say dreamlike quality and fantastical quality that she leans into but within this very solidly realized and presented world where the impossible happens so it's this wonderful sort of journey that you're, you're taking on in terms of the creativity there well, well, yes, and and the, you know the, the journey is about uh, uh, is about love gained and love lost, and that was both with the, um, uh, the woman that 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 she gets attached to and the cat. 
she's a she's a she's a big cat fan her 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 cat stan um you know she she loves him so so yes there there was there was the dream you know the dreamlike quality but but kind of anchoring all of this was uh love and loss yeah and then the narrative similar to uh i love this part it's sort of there's a, a definitely a linear element to it but it's still quite sort of fragmented and abstracted and we're seeing sort of yes. moments that we're sort of extrapolating a lot from which again i think is a you know a tribute to the writing isn't it where you see these little episodic moments and you can sort of from that in your mind in your imagination you can sort of you know which is a, a big part of comics isn't it placing what happens before and after <laughs> well in, in addition to that she also gives you a a, a great sense of presence in terms of the physical location this is occurring the house at the beginning that that she lives in with her dad and then the flight of fancy living in the clouds and you you get the sense looking at this that that she has a great sense of place the flying houses that's that's miyazaki but she integrates all of these other things that she's seen and makes it her own. There's a wonderful, um, just a particular panel as well, where uh, the characters like stood outside the shop in the rain under the awning. And you have the effect of the rain and the sort of the cross hatching sort of putting everything together. So it's very sort of dense, but it almost looks like a, a sort of uh, wood carving with the sort of the texture to the whole uh pieces uh, yeah and, and looks you know nothing like anything else in it but doesn't look out of place if that makes sense <laughs> oh yeah sure yeah absolutely and she and she uses a number of different te- techniques because she uses you know lots of blacks to go ahead and mm. show things but then um she'll go ahead and give the fine textures that you need either for an outdoor view or laying down in the bed or what have you and she'll kind of she kind of melds all of those things together to give you that sense of place. And of course, you know, loads of wonderful sort of clean line uh, work as well, just to to build the images. Well, yes, and, and as a matter of fact, I asked her once. Um, uh, you know, when when she was uh, she was in Japan, she she put up her uh, a sketch page every day, and some of the sketch pages were very very intricate. And I asked her, I said, you know, do you kind of, you know, do you sketch this in pencil first? Do you lay it out? She goes, oh, no, I just start drawing. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was like, but, but look, look at what this, <laughs> you know, she, <laughs> you know, for someone who doesn't draw, that was almost incomprehensible to me that, oh, yeah, I just started drawing. And people always said that about uh, Kirby, didn't they? He just sort of like start yes. top left and just draw across the page to the bottom right. right. And he'd be like, there you go. There's your... And no, nothing, no sort of perspective worked out. No sort of, as you say, you know, just thumbnailing or checking. Or... No, no, it's all, it's all perfectly proportionate and, you know, wonderful dynamism and images. And yes, incredible, isn't it? A real gift. Yes, a real gift. And then the other thing she also does is she, she works a lot with perspectives she brings that camera in really close and then she brings the camera back really far and and makes it visually interesting from that from that view so it's not like everyone was confined in a room spinning 
she, because that was more about the story, when you, when you read and went through spinning, you didn't get that sense of differing perspectives. All right, everything was kind of, you know, with, within the frame, uh, uh, everything at, at about the same perspective, uh, because, like I said, because of the story. But here you got a lot of this movement of where, like I said, where you're seeing this stuff from. Yeah, we're sort of moving in to look at things, but then moving out to get a huge sort of overview. The sort of the revelation of the city itself being a great example there, isn't it? Sure, ex exactly. And um, uh, also to give, to give the feeling of what that city is. Warren, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. This is a, this is a total thrill for me. Um, uh, Tilly's great. Ricky and Avery Hill are great. Catriona, Dave, you. Uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate this. Thanks again to Warren for talking to us. And thank you for listening. See you next month. This show is a Holdfast Network production. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other programs you may enjoy.